right. Guess what I had for dinner today? What did you have for dinner? Hopefully not soup. Soup! (laughs) 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 Oh, boy. How did I know that? Chicken noodle soup. I had Popeye's today. Ooh, love that chicken from Popeye's. I didn't feel like going to the... uh... To the grocery store. I feel you. I Man. feel like even if you do have a chance to go to the grocery store, Popeyes is a solid option. Yeah. Fucking love Popeyes. I had Wendy's for lunch. I should have got Popeyes. Ew. I uh, for National Roast Day, I roasted Wendy's even on Twitter, even though yeah, <laughs> even though I it wasn't really a roast. I stated the truth that the two times I've eaten Wendy's in my life, I got food poisoning both times. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I At two different Wendy's. Mind. Two different Wendy's? Yeah. There was one time my mom found a uh, a bug in her one of her potatoes. A potato Ew. bug. Yeah, and she took it up to the manager, and she's like, oh, you know what that is, sweetie? That's just a spud. And she's like, no, what? bitch, you got legs. <laughs> <laughs> Bugs don't have legs. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you to our sponsor, Aquaries, which consists of a team of creatives headed by experienced content creators Patty Dwyer, Zachary Perkins, and Dalton Roan. They specialize in entertainment, photography, and filming, producing music videos, mixing music, as well as producing and hosting comedy shows. Got an idea? They'll bring it to life. They just released the music video for local rapper Knuckle Nate's Mind Fucked Up. This Friday, they are putting on a comedy showcase at B-Lux, Biloxi's hottest new bar, which will be followed by their trademark game of Spicy Charades, a game of charades where the participants each eat a million Scoville pepper. Catch them on Chromecast on February 28th and contact their Facebook or Instagram to find out how they can bring your vision to life. And again, thank you to our Patreon supporter, Ernie Kinemer, and let's roll the music. Spicy Charades is my favorite Mexican dish. Here we go. Ooh, it's Thursday night, and you know what that music means. It's time for the Open Micers Podcast. My name is Jason Robbins. I'm Jacob Craig, and oh we are gosh. both very Oh my gosh, tonight. Do you, you want to oh. do, do an intro, Jason? Oh you, man. You never get to do an intro. We you got... do an intro. Oh, we got we got a legend with us tonight. I'm I'm totally trying to keep my cool because we have one of the coolest people on planet Earth right now. He's a bass player. He's been on so many albums. It is like if I was to just sit here and name the albums this man's been on, we would be here for the entire 40 minutes. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to introduce him right now. Mr. Leland Scalar is with us. I am so thrilled to be here with you. I can't, I can't even put it into words. Fantastic. It's, cool. it's so good to meet you. It's a pleasure, man. Nice to meet you too also. Um, one of the things I, I want to go right into, um, you've yeah. been on, uh, and, and Jacob, you did look up the right Leland Sklar this, this episode, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, is it, is it Leland Sklar or Leland Sklar? I'm, I'm going to double check real quick. Yeah, we, we had a little mix-up a few weeks ago where Jacob looked up the wrong guest. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honest mistake. I'm willing to be, I'm willing to be anybody. <laughs> um, but you've been on so many classic albums, but one of the ones I want to ask you about, and you can just sit here and tell me stories, you sure. were on one of my favorite albums of all time, Billy Cobham Speck. Oh, yeah. 
oh man, please just, just give me stories. Like, what was it like to record that album? Well, a, a, a bit of history going into that. I was in a band called The Section, which was James Taylor's band in Jackson Brown's. One of the tours that we did was opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra for about seven weeks. And I became friends with all the guys and became friends with Billy during the course of that tour. Um, so when all that stuff ended, I think it was in 73, um, Billy called me and he asked me if I would uh, like to come back to New York from L.A. and uh, and do his solo album. And I, and I thought for a second and said, yes, <laughs> of course I want to be back there. Um, we cut it at, at Electric Lady Studios uh, in New York. And we, the thing that was surprising to me was in the late 60s, I was in a band called Wolfgang in Los Angeles, and we were managed by a, a company that had another act called Zephyr. And Tommy Bolin was in Zephyr. And Tommy and I were old friends because of this. I had no idea Tommy was going to be playing on Spectrum. And so when I arrived at the studio and went in, all of a sudden I see my old compatriot from hmm. from many years earlier, and um, I was thrilled. And so it was Billy and myself and Jan Hammer and Tommy Bolin. Wow. We we basically cut all the tracks that we did in two days. It's pretty much first takes of everything or second take. Um, which, there, is, there was, which is amazing ahead. to me because those songs are crazy. Uh, like progressive rock oh, type yeah. songs. How did you do that in two days? Like, what was the were the songs already written when you got well, there? Yeah, I mean, Billy had got pretty much with Jan had laid out, you know, the, the structure in mm -hmm. terms of the layout of the songs. But it was, um, and Tommy came in a day early because um, they had sketched out a few things on charts for me just to to have as a guide. And Tommy couldn't read music, so he came in early to work with, with Jan just to get the heads and stuff worked out on the songs. But every bit of soloing, er, there's no overdubs on any wow. of that. There's one of the songs, I think it, I can't remember, you know, the titles e e e evade me. It might be Tarian Matador or one of those. But there's a point in it where Tommy and Jan are trading solos back and forth, licks back and forth. And at one point, if you listen carefully, you hear Tommy going at the end of the third one you hear a and he broke his E string on that um kept right on playing finished his solo played the head and uh and never went back and fixed it it's so that that's on the record but um Robert Moog came down to the studio and um if you listen there's all those things that are going on that that sound like um sequencing and stuff that and it's all Billy playing like the first incarnation of electronic drums that Robert Moog had designed. And um, it was amazing. One of the most amazing things um, was um, there was Sam Ash Music was one of the big music stores um, on 48th Street. And Billy had always lusted after this Chinese crash symbol in there that was Gene Krupa's. And it was oh, yeah. hanging on the wall. And he got them to let him take it to the studio and, and put it on. Now, Ken Scott, the great Ken Scott was engineering this album and they set up this crash symbol. And the first time Billy rode that crash symbol, I looked and Ken was levitated about four feet off the ground and his hair was sticking straight up. In the air. 
Oh no, did we thing freeze? I ever heard in my life. All the meters, man, meters pegged on that. And uh, so they ended up putting the symbol back behind Billy. So when he wanted to play it, it was off mic and he would reach behind him and play wow. it. Wow. Um, <laughs> it was an amazing thing. It was, it was all raw energy on that. Yeah. And the thing, the thing I think that made that album as good as it was and still is, was the fact that Billy and Jan were really coming from jazz fusion direction and Tommy and I were both rock players. And so rather than all, all the guys being like, Fuso jazz guys. It has more of a, a more of a grounding on that level because we weren't blowing, you know. We were we were more like Tommy really loved playing rhythm on the stuff, and I really loved just finding like on Stratus, you know, just finding a baseline that held the whole thing together rather than going off and starting to blow other parts through it. So, I love yeah. that album, and to oh, me, yeah. it, 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 today it's as strong an album today as it was. Back in 1973. It's one of those albums that I I just sing the praises of to everybody. Any one of my musician friends or meet musicians who've never listened to that album, like most people think, oh, it's just a drummer's album, but it's not. It's, no, not at all. It is every, one of, every time Every time I see Jeff Beck, Jeff yeah. Beck was running up to me going, Stratus, Stratus. <laughs> and, he, and he said that that album changed the way he looked at guitar. Because oh, yeah. of the way Tommy played, I mean it. It really had an, a huge impact on a lot of people, and mm-hmm. and you know certainly we didn't see it when it was going down. You know, I mean we we were we were all in there playing, having a great time over these couple of days, and drink. We we kind of lived on. There was an orange Julius down the street, <laughs> and we were getting buckets of of strawberry Julius <laughs> and doing that. And on on the second night when we finished working, we went to an Indian restaurant called Nirvana and had dinner, and that was it. Then I got right back on a plane and flew home, and they worked the next day because there were two songs on that album that Ron Carter played upright on that were like big band songs that had horn section and oh, yeah. everything. And I had to get back to L.A., so um, so that was cool. And also, before we go any farther, I just wanted to say uh, it was really tra- a tragic day today hearing that Chick Corea died. I know. I literally just saw that before yeah. we started, that Chick Corea yeah. passed away today. Like, man. Yeah, some bizarre cancer. That they said it was a very rare cancer that he had. Mm-hmm. It was a recent diagnosis, supposedly. And, you know, he's wow. such an amazing, amazing musician. It's really terribly tragic that he's we've gone. lost too many amazing musicians over the last year i mean yeah, it's absolutely it's i agree too bad I man agree. there's and a just lot of yesterday we lost larry people. flint as well i didn't yeah. even know that really yeah yeah dude larry flint died yesterday huh. yeah i didn't know that yeah. either wow yeah. people yeah. are people are going that's i guess that's part of the uh program but yeah uh, really sad but you you're you're you were talking about that album and you're just you're throwing out names of like these legendary people i've heard my entire life like jan hammer who if you don't know who that is if you listen to pretty much any uh if you watched any tv in the 80s jan hammer pretty much did every every uh theme song well certainly for like miami vice that was such a signature Mm -hmm. uh, thing for him but monstrous player, absolutely monstrous musician. You know, and you go and look at any footage of Mahavishnu Orchestra and any of those mm-hmm. projects, or, or when Jeff Beck and Jan Hammer were working together, uh, it's deep. <laughs> it's deep as the ocean. Yeah. That and uh, Robert Moog as well. And if yeah. anybody doesn't know who that is, he created the, the Mini Moog. 
Yeah, uh, the Moog synthesizer. Yeah, the Moog synthesizer, and and the probably the most, um, probably the most recognizable use of that synthesizer was uh, uh, dancing in the streets that Van Halen did on uh, oh, really? Diver Down. That's what that that's what he used for that song was the the yeah. Moog synthesizer. Yeah, now, he was a genius. I mean, amazing. You know, these guys like that, the uh, George Massenbergs and all these guys that are just. You know, they, they they invented flubber, I think. <laughs> <laughs> they they think on another level. So tell us more about. I mean, I I don't even know where to start really with with all the albums that you've been on. I mean, how, really, like, let's go back to the beginning. Like, how did how did you get started in the music business? Like, what was your first step into this wonderful career you had? Um, I I think a, a pivotal life was when I was in this band Wolfgang that was out working with Zephyr and all that um, we had a, a drummer in the band who had a friend named John Fishbeck and John owned a studio in Los Angeles called uh, Crystal Recorders and he did all of the early Stevie Wonder records songs in the key of life and mm. this. oh yeah well he would come and hang out at our rehearsals and this was like in 69 and excuse me um and at one of our rehearsals, he ended up bringing a, f a friend of his who had just gotten back to town from England, and it was James Taylor. And James had cut his first album on, on Apple Records, and he hung out for a couple of days with us at, these re at our rehearsals, checking out stuff, and he played us his music. And we were going, shit, this guy's really good. This is pretty great. Um, and that was it. And he split. Well, he got, at that point, he got offered a gig at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, and they had a sort of the complete band. They had Danny Korchmar on guitar, Russ Kunkel on drums, and Carol King was the piano player. And they needed a bass player. And he remembered me from this rehearsal and told Peter Asher, who was managing and producing him, and they tracked me down through, I think probably through John Fishbeck, and, um, and asked me if I would play this one gig with him at the Troubadour. And I said, sure. I was still in college at this point, pursuing a totally different career. and. Um, I th it was like the perfect storm. You know, James was the perfect artist for this period. Had James not come to that rehearsal, we would have never met, so he would have never called me. Um, but we did that one gig, and the next thing you know, he's on the cover of Time magazine and, and started an entire new wave of music, and I was taken up in this tsunami that went along with it. So I basically went from having only been in the studio once to do demos with our band to being an uh, to being a, a first call player in so town, and we were fate. suddenly doing like four dates a day, five six days a week. So it was just fate, like just being right at the right place at the right time. Yeah, it was exactly that. And and the, uh, the good part of it was was when the opportunity came, I did have the goods for mm. it because a lot of people mm. find themselves in that position, but mm. they really don't have what's needed at yeah. the time. And for, for for me, it was like another perfect thing where the thing I really enjoyed doing was exactly what was needed at this moment. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's like I thought it was one gig and it turned into the rest of my life. Wow. <laughs> and you probably had no idea either that no. that one gig at the Troubadour would lead to over 2,000 albums. Yeah. No, not in a million years. And I think James wasn't my first recording. And I'll bet these guys were at the Troubadour gig because the first studio gig I got called to do um, was for Brian Highland. 
um, and he was produced by Del Shannon. And Del was a big star at that point, and Brian had just had a, a huge hit with um, Itsy Bitsy Teensy Weensy Yellow Polka Dot. He had the novelty <laughs> thing, but he had a bunch. Of, he had some other major hit records at the time, and Russ and I ended up working on on his album. But and that was before I did James's first album that I did with him, which I think was One Man Dog, perhaps. Um, I I think it was One Man Dog was the first one, either Mudslide Slim or One Man Dog. I don't remember. But, um, it's been an unbelievable run, and I and I literally pinched myself every day. You know, plus I dig pinching myself, so that's that's <laughs> an opportunity. Um, but you know, I I really I've never taken this for granted. I feel incredibly mm. fortunate that that I've had this this run, and you know, and that you know, without the pandemic, I had a, a you know, solid year's worth of work. Uh, going on and of course it all disappeared like a fart in a hurricane when, <laughs> you know, when this went down like everybody else yeah so what was it i mean what's it like to kind of know that you you and you know you pretty much created a sound like in the 70s and and 80s like you know you're a huge part of that and yeah. i what what is that like to to have well, make that sort of stamp on on music history well, you, you don't see it as it's going down, certainly. I mean, you're just happy to be working. You know, yeah. As a musician, everybody's paranoid when you're a musician, and you're mm. always hoping to get another call. You know, The day you finish a gig and there's nothing in front of you, you think you'll never work again kind yeah. of thing. So during, that, during my whole career, I've never really looked back on it and, and thought about what's been accomplished. I really try to look forward. The thing I was fortunate about, I believe, was being in a situation where I a lot of genres and doing rock and roll and, and country and, and yeah. jazz and hip hop and doing TV and movies and all that stuff. So it's been for me really interesting because the variety of music and musicians that I've gotten to work with is incredibly wide. And that's what's kept me really engaged in, and enjoying this where you know, one day I could be working with Billy Cobham, and the next day I was working with Andy Griffith. Uh -huh. Absolutely, <laughs> things like that. I mean, to me, that's heaven. You know, having those opportunities. And, yeah, and I'm glad you said that too, because that actually leads into a question that I had. Because mm -hmm. you've worked with so many people over so many genres, from just for the folks at home who may not know, uh, Ricky Martin, Bee Gees, Dolly Parton, even Ray Charles, you've worked yeah. with. And I wanted to know, like, when you were when you're performing with all these people, is the bass technique that they ask for different across all genres, or does like the language of rhythm kind of stay the same in a way working with well, all these people? Uh, I, I think my approach and my sound and everything has remained kind of consistent throughout all of those. Um, mm. They've never, for the most part, the artists have never really asked me to change anything for them. Um, engineer, producer might have something, but to me, everything, everything I do is predicated on the song that we're doing at that moment and what the song needs. And I usually make the determination at that point as to, you know, what, what the part should be, how busy, but I'm, I'm always welcoming, you know, input from the people I'm working with. If they have an idea, man, throw it my way and let me, you know, let me digest it and, and work with that too. Cause. <clears throat> I, I think the, the interesting part of this is the collaborative 
aspect of, of music. So mm -hmm. getting to work with all these unbelievable musicians and everybody's got their own thing and you try to glean from each one what you can, but it's all really predicated on, on, on the song. And, and I look at, you know, like something like Stratus, I used exactly the same settings and stuff on Dr. My Eyes with Jackson Brown um, and James Taylor's music. Um, I, I haven't, I don't really change that much from them. I think my parts might change just based on the genre and the, and the individual song, but sonically, I, I'm kind of, whatever sound I ended up creating for myself seems to it's kind of like Zelig. It kind of just, you know, shows up in everything and seems to work. Well, I would imagine so that if somebody is is hiring you to come in and, and be a part of a production that, you know, they know who you are and, and yeah. the things you've done. So it's kind of like, I know what he does. I know that he's going to bring what I want. Is that, well, is that a lot of it too? I, I think that's probably a, a good as you know, a good chunk of it is that, but like I said, I also welcome input from, from them. So, I mean, I might show up and they have, I, I did one album project. It was a Japanese project and they had done a lot of pre-production in Japan and the um, producer on it and artist said that when they were creating these parts, um, they said they thought about me and what I would play and, and that's what inspired them. And then they played me the demo and I thought to myself, not in a million years would I have ever played that. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't say it, but I was sitting there thinking, what the hell do they think I do? They may think that that's designed around what I do. Um, but but we've, we sorted it all out, and they were very happy, you know, when it was, when it was over. But, you know, each project has its own demands, and, um, and you can't – when I go to work, literally I'm joining another band uh, every day when I go to work and you have to assimilate into what that person's doing. Um, I mean, it could be Clint Black one day or Reba McIntyre. I did tons and tons of country records mm -hmm. and, and you go in and you become a part of their band for, for that, that day or that week that you're in the studio. And, and, and it also doesn't matter to me if a new, a, a new artist contacts me to play with them I take the same dedication to the to them as I would take to Phil Collins when I would work with Phil, because this is their career, you know, yeah. this is their life, and it's you're there, and they may never have the the luxury or opportunity to be in the studio recording again. So you want to make it the best possible experience it can be for them. Now, in your heart, you may go, nobody's ever going to hear this. I mean, it's not very good or any. But <laughs> you've answered. You have two op options when the phone rings. You can say yeah. And if you say yes, it comes with obligations, and you go in and you make it the very best you possibly can. Yeah. Well, you like you said, you work with Phil Collins, Phil Collins, and arguably one of the you know his seminal albums, No Jacket Required. Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, just in the '80s alone, I mean, you worked with him, you worked with um, uh, Daryl Hall, John Oates, um, and. My favorite here is uh, you did the A Team theme song. Oh, yes, absolutely. I was absolutely going to bring that up. The A Team is one of my favorite shows of all time. <laughs> and that's so crazy. Like, as an eight year old kid, I would never listen to the A Team theme song and think, you know what? 
I'm going to interview someone who was on that yes. song one day. <laughs> Never um, would have thought. <laughs> well, you know, miracles do happen. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, well, all that stuff goes back to 1967 for me, because I was in a band called Group Therapy, and our producer was Mike Post. And in these years uh-huh. later, I, I ended up reconnecting with Mike, and, and he was the, the, he and his partner, Pete Carpenter, were like the kings of television theme songs. Oh, yeah. And I, mm. I started it with the Rockford Files, and we did oh, yeah. Hill Street Blues and the A-Team and all, all, all of these shows, Magnum, P.I., don't forget Alf. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, Mike Post. About that is the composer's name was Alf. <laughs> yeah, yes. That's all I've wanted from the Alf theme song. Yeah, Alf Clausen wrote the theme for the music for Alf. Wow. Yeah, I think it's just brilliant. But, yeah, it's all been fun. I mean, I got to play. I did It's Raining Men. I got to work with Helen Reddy on I Am Woman. And, you know, it's just it's been really a, a fun a fun run. I, I I can could never find a negative in in what's gone on. There's been a couple of moments that you you could have done without, but I would say 99% of everything I've been involved with really was enjoyable. And I feel very fortunate for that. Do you ever listen back to any anything you've done in the past, like in, in any any just any track where you're just you're listening to it and you're like, man. I think I could have done that a little better. Or do you listen back and go, you know, that was, that was okay. That was pretty good. Yeah. It's one of those things. It it was interesting. I'm kind of on the advisory board uh, and bass player magazine, which is just one of these things. They just get a ton of bass players and they say, you're on the advisory board. (laughs) But in in one of their, um, uh, one of their publications, they had a, question where they were asking the advisors, if you could go back in time and change anything, what would you do? And I was reading everybody's thing in print. It was all these paragraphs about specific songs and how they would have done them differently. And I see my name on there and it says nothing. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's really true. I can't go back and judge something I did in 1975 at this point and yeah. think, oh, I could have done this. Because at that moment, that was the right thing to do. Uh, I, I wouldn't do it the same if I was recording it now, but I, you really can't judge that, that any other period because, you know, it's like talking about clothes of the 80s. Oh, you know? yeah. and every, in the 80s, everybody thought, you know, bell bottoms and platform shoes were hip. <laughs> now it's kitsch and they look back and go, who, who, why would people have done that? But in the moment, it's the right thing. So, um, you know, I hear things that I would play differently now, but but I really don't I don't judge in that way. And I generally when I listen to music that I've been involved with, I don't focus on the bass part. I still like to listen to things as an entirety. And those things fit the track at the time. But uh, I would do it different now probably. Or some things the same. Or sometimes I wish I still had that the chops I had back then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you still do. Well, I've still, I've still got, got chops, but they're, 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 the 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 scariest part of this whole pandemic has been just trying to keep your chops up without oh, yeah. being touring and not working all the time. You have to kind of force yourself to come in and really put some hours in and play just to maintain calluses and yeah. muscle mm-hmm. memory and all that. Have you done any so, um, recording with anybody where you have to do it over, uh, like sending back and forth um, yeah. files yeah. and stuff? Um, um, I'm actually doing a project right now with Ian Pace from Deep Purple, the drummer in Deep Purple. Ooh. 
and uh, he sent me <laughs> a bunch of files and I've sent one song back so far and he was really happy with it. And I did an album with a guy in Ireland and another one in New Zealand. Hmm. Before the pandemic ever recorded at home. I know I've never had a home studio, but uh, some right. friends of mine decided to do a, a cover of Easy Lover. And um, <laughs> they asked me if I would play on it. And I said, I'd love to, but I'm not set up for recording at home. And, you know, usually when people would send me files in the past, I would use it as an excuse to go to lunch with somebody. So, we, you know, go over to a friend of mine's house who had a home studio and we'd do the bass part and then go out and get pizza or something like that. Um, but with COVID, that all ended because nobody sees each other anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, so on this project, he had a friend at SSL and they ended up sending me a SSL 2 plus interface. And um, I just ended up you know, plugging into GarageBand and mm -hmm. talk to, because I'm in a band right now with the guys I've been with for 50 years. And uh, I called Steve Postel, who's one of the members of the immediate family. And uh, I said, okay, uh, run me through this. <laughs> and um, so he, he gave me a tutorial on, on uh, GarageBand. And uh, I plugged in and, and started, you know, working from home. I haven't really opened it up to release telling people yeah i'm here if you want to do it but um because mm -hmm. i've ended up with so many projects going on other than just that that uh, my my days are like just packed more than they would have been had i been on the road you know, hmm. it's like it's been yeah. a really interesting year i'll yeah. say that I mean, it's, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's been a horrendous year for so many people yeah um and and one of the you know one of the things that you can't wait for this to end for all the suffering on health-wise, financially, business, there's so many things have gone down the crapper um, on this. But I really looked at it when it started, and how am I going to do? Because all my work was gone, and um, and that's how I ended up creating this YouTube channel that I've been doing, and and I've been that that occupies first half of every day. I've I've put up about four hundred and doing this recording and doing our band. So it's been a crazy busy year, but, you know, just staying alive yeah. right now. Yeah, would, would much would rather say. not be in the circumstances we're in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, everything right now is plan B, because plan A went down the crapper. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, Jacob, uh, but, you, you, got any more, uh, you got any more questions for, for Mr. Scalar? We're, we're starting yeah. to tick down the clock here. Yeah, I do have one very hey. short question. Yeah. Uh, that I wrote. It's very important. It's very important to me. I need to know because you've done the music for all of these shows, but I want to know which one is your favorite, the A-Team, Rockford Files, or Magnum P.I.? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> you know, that's, that's really good. I really, I love the theme to Rockford Files because I loved mm -hmm. working with Tommy Morgan who played harmonica on that. He's one of the greatest harmonica players ever. But they all have their own thing. And the shows were all fun because all those shows had great chase scenes. And the Absolutely. chase scenes were always really long charts. So we really got to dig in and have fun. Uh, but I, I, I really enjoyed all of those. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's like, who's your favorite child kind of thing. Right. I mean, <laughs> I have an answer to that one. Okay. I only have one, but uh, yeah, she's my favorite. Okay. <laughs> now, of those shows, which would have been your favorite? Oh, absolutely the A team. Okay. 100%. Uh, but I, I, I will say that Rockford Files is totally underrated. 
Oh, I do yeah. love me some Rockford Files, and I do love the A Team. But I think my the the my favorite's got to be the really? greatest American hero. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I'll tell you the thing that was really cool is that was being used on one of the Super Bowl commercials. Yeah, I saw that commercial the other yeah, day. Yeah, Jason really? Alexander. It's a it's a oh, Tide yeah. Tide soap commercial. And they're using Greatest American Hero for that. <laughs> yeah, I called that out the other day during the Super Bowl. I heard it and I said, you know, isn't that the Greatest American Hero theme song? I'm interviewing someone who wrote that song. He's on that song. Yeah. Yeah, it was really thrilling for them. I'm sure Joey Scarberry and those guys are probably beyond themselves that that thing got resurrected oh, yeah. for that. Do you, do you find that happens to you a lot where you like go to the grocery store or something you're like oh yeah that's me playing bass yeah it happens a lot you know but i don't i i I recognize the song i don't think about that that it's me but i do recognize it the hardest part of my gig sometimes has been that when i'm involved i'm involved in basic tracks and Mm. there's times where i'll walk out and i'm done with basic tracks and i'm going on to another project but by the time they finish it they've put on strings and horns and sometimes i hear a song and i go god that sounds familiar but i don't recognize it because it's so different from what we left with when we were just doing the rhythm date Uh, and then suddenly it hits me and i go oh cool i wondered how that turned out because generally i don't hear stuff after we you know things don't get released until long after your job is done and Uh you've done a lot of other things in the interim so Absolutely. you don't necessarily recognize it uh, at that point. Well, Mr. Sklar, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We want to get you on again because I, I need to talk to you more. <laughs> I, I, have I need to. to as well. I will say that you have been the most uh, anticipated guest in yes. our recent memory that, that we've, we're very excited to have had you on. Well, I'm, I'm you know, certainly during this period, I'm not going anywhere. So call me anytime. You know, if, if somebody cancels on you, just figure I'm filler and I could. Absolutely. <laughs> well, before we go, we just got to ask you one question. We ask every guest. Um, sure. What what advice do you give to uh, a, an, an up and coming bass player that wants to get started in the music industry? Um, I think. Listen to as much music as you can. Is you know, I mean, it depends what you want to do in mm-hmm. in the business. It's all predicated if you want to ju- be in a band and just do that, or if you want to try to do studio work. Because there's different requirements for each of these things. Yeah. But I, I, to me, it's like the ultimately, I always say, just have fun, enjoy it, get get as mm-hmm. much chops as you can, network as much as you can, um, because so much of this business, like for me, meeting James through another guy at another band's rehearsal changed my life. Mm -hmm. So you never know what's going to happen. So, you know, be open to everything and, um, and just uh, have fun with it though. When you're in this business, man, it is, it is a blessing to play music and to bring pleasure to people in this, in this world. So to be able to do this as your vocation rather than a hobby is a, pretty cool one day hopefully i'll get to play drums with you <laughs> okay i've been waiting try, try to make that happen one of these days <laughs> but um but thank you so much for coming on the show we're definitely going to have you back on again we want to talk to you way more about everything yep. and um uh jacob for you and uh where do you where can people find you on the internet do you have any social media or anything like well, that? yeah i'm when i'm not kicked off of facebook which is usually about 150 <laughs> days a year they can find me on Facebook. Um, 
I kind of do Instagram. Uh, I, I like Facebook because I can be long winded there where Twitter and Instagram are yeah. not quite the formats for me, even <laughs> yeah. though. But um, and it, this book that I did, if they uh, I've got a website for that and I can be reached through that, um, which is Leland Sklar's beard. Dot com. <laughs> and I, the book is 6,000 photographs of people giving me the finger. Fantastic. <laughs> I am going it, to get that book. It's I'm incredible. Book. It's really, a, it's a huge coffee table book. Really good. Uh, but the other thing is um, my YouTube channel is really where I, I've be- become devoted. Mm-hmm. And um, they can, it's just Leland Sklar uh, channel uh, on uh, YouTube. And there's mountains of videos on that. And there's a clubhouse people can join. And I do, two live streams a month on that, which lasts about two and a half hours. And um, it's really, and it's like 10 bucks a month, you know, so awesome. it's, it's a lot of fun though. And a great community grew out of this pandemic on that. There's about 147,000 people on that channel. Well, it was so good having you. And um, we just want to tell everybody, go head over to at open micers on um, pretty much everywhere. Uh, at Open Micers um, on Twitter, Open Micers Podcast on Facebook. Um, go head over to our, on any of our social media. You can buy T-shirts. We got our T-shirts and mugs and stickers and masks, all that stuff. And um, so we will see you guys next week. We never hear it over. Only Jason that gets to hear it. I get to hear it.